You're listening to the Sunday morning message from Clouds Creek Baptist Church. Join us for worship Sunday morning at 11. Or for more information, visit cloudscreek.org. We've made it. We've made it. Uh, your pastor is not going to try to milk any more out of 1 Corinthians. We're done. <laughs> this is it. We've made it to the last week. I don't think I could stretch chapter 16 to two weeks if I tried. Other pastors might be talented enough to do that. I am not. So you don't have to worry about it. This is it. We're done. I looked and we started this series in August. So we've been here for a while. I don't think I anticipated this series taking this long, uh, but we've been breaking down the scripture, and it's been good. Have you guys enjoyed it? If not, tell me afterwards. Uh, You can just let me know. That's fine. I'll probably only be slightly offended, but we've made it. We've made it to the end of the series, and so what this series has been about is about the flawed church at Corinth. In Corinth, there was this church that, that Paul clearly had an issue with, and he writes this letter and another one. Don't worry, we're not going to just jump into 2 Corinthians next week. I'm sure you guys were like, oh man, are we just about to jump into the second one? Just keep going. No, we're not going to go- jump into the sequel uh, just yet. I think we might be starting a series on prayer after Easter. So we got Palm Sunday next week, and then we've got Easter the following week. Did that sneak up on anybody else? Yeah, all of us? Okay, good. Um, some of you guys are like, wait, that is two weeks from now? And then we're going to jump into a series on prayer is the plan, unless God tells me otherwise, and then you'll find out. Um, So we're picking up in in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 this week, and we're seeing Paul, and he has this great moment of summary. And so what we're going to do today is look at what he says in chapter 16, and then kind of look back through the whole letter and look at what what we can take away. Don't worry, we're not going to go like page by page. I'll still get out of here by lunchtime, okay? Maybe. Maybe. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, picking up in verse 1, says, Now about the collection for the Lord's people, nothing like just jumping into money. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money keeping up with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give the, I will give the letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. So first thing is, this isn't just Paul jumping in and being bossy, like, hey, and just before I go, I want to tell you about money, and you should definitely give me all your money, and it should be a part of your income, and the more you make, the more you give. And he's not just jumping into that kind of idea, because it it does seem like it when he says now about the collection for the Lord's people, it's like, wait, do you mean like, like our collection? But in reality, what he's talking about is when he says for the Lord's people, there was a mission project essentially that they were working on to help out the poor and the needy in Jerusalem. And so the thought is, is that's what he's talking about here is it's like this church at Corinth that they wanted to know about it. That's why he starts off with this section with now about thee. This is the response. Every other time he said that in this letter, it's been in response to something that Corinth had asked him about first. Our understanding is that this letter to the Corinthians is all written in a response to a letter they sent to 
him. So this seems like something that they asked, that they were like, hey, Paul, what do we do with this money that we're taking up for Jerusalem, for the poor and needy in Jerusalem? And so this is his, his response to that is, hey, this mission project that we're working on, take all your money, bring it every week, set it to the side, and when we come, we'll take it back to Jerusalem with us. And what's so cool to me is that we get to this passage in the middle of Annie Armstrong, right? We get to this passage in the middle of Annie Armstrong, which is exactly what Annie Armstrong is. Annie Armstrong is an offering that 100% of everything that is given, none of it comes to the church, none of it comes, it, it all goes to missionaries, people who are actively spreading the gospel, reaching out to the poor and needy to share the gospel with people who have never heard it. And so we have this opportunity with Annie Armstrong to come alongside and continue this mission that was happening thousands of years ago in Corinth. That it's like, hey, since the beginning of the church, we've been taking up an offering to spread the gospel. We've been taking up an offering to love on people. Our goal for Annie Armstrong is $1,000. I think we can absolutely blow that away. I have no doubt that if we fully understood and grasped what Annie Armstrong's offering is, we could absolutely blow that out of the water. And I challenge you guys to do that, to come alongside the church at Corinth, to come alongside the other churches in the U.S. where we are giving money to reach our country. This is all to reach our country. Now, later in the year, we'll get to Lottie Moon, and that's outside the country, right? We've got these kind of two offerings that we focus on throughout the year that are, that are very specifically mission-focused. And so this is Paul's encouragement to the church at Corinth of, hey, they wanted to be involved. They were like, what, how can we help out with this mission project that you guys have going on? And Paul's like, hey, just take up the money, and when I come, we'll go, and we'll take it with us. And this is not something that, this is, when you read it at first, you're like, is this money to, to, for Paul? Like, is this, this is not, Paul's not getting rich off of this money. Paul actually made his money making tents. That's how Paul got all of his money was he had a second job. And so, so the same thing with the Annie Armstrong offering. When you give to that offering, nobody is getting rich off of the Annie Armstrong offering. It all goes to spreading the gospel. Paul then continues in, in 1 Corinthians, and I'm going to kind of skip a little bit because it's just kind of an explanation of where he's going, when he's going, who is he's sending to come be with the church at Corinth to help him, uh, and then we're going to pick up in verse 13. In verse 13, he says, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts and Achaia, I didn't Google how to say that, so I have no idea, to be honest. And they devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's Prayer. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people, to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, I wrote it down, and it's still just hard to say. I didn't grow up with anybody with these names, did y'all? I don't know anybody with these names. When they arrived, because they have supplied what was lacking from you, for they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. 
I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. I love how Paul describes those three guys that I can't say their name. Right? He describes them as people who refresh his spirit. They refreshed his spirit. Do you guys have those people in your life? Do you have those people in your life that when you spend time with them, you walk away thinking, man, I just feel refreshed. I feel more full because of the time I spent with this person. Tell them that. I mean, that's what Paul says here. It's like these men deserve recognition. The people in your life that that spend time and, and when you spend time with them, you walk away feeling refreshed. Tell those people that they, that they do that for you. Tell those people. Recognize them. Lean into those relationships. Spend more time with that, those people. It's okay if not everyone refreshes you. Right? Like we in the American church have this idea of fairness and everything has to be fair and everything has to be equal. And that's just not the case. That's just not the case. If you even look at Jesus, right, when he, when he is, is feeding the 5,000, when he has this Sermon on the Mount, there are thousands of people who are there. And how many of them were his close friends? Twelve. You've got these 12 apostles that were his close friends. And then even in the 12, there were three that were a little bit closer. Does anybody know who those three were? John? John? Peter, James. And there were several times that the 12 would be doing something and Jesus would take those three guys. And I mean, they got to see the transfiguration of Jesus and on the mountain and they got to see this thing that it was like, oh, what? And all the rest of them missed it, right? It's okay, it's okay if not everyone refreshes your soul. Because even if you look at how Paul wrote this to the church at Corinth, I feel like it had to hurt their feelings a little bit. I mean, I feel like the whole letter had to hurt their feelings a good bit. But I feel like this part, you know, he mentions these three guys. and He's like, these guys brought what you were lacking. They refreshed my spirit. I feel like if I'm the wretch of Corinth, I'm like, how? What was I? I didn't refresh your spirit. Okay, that's fine, I guess. I guess I'll work on it. It's okay. It's okay if not everyone refreshes your spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that it gives you a pass to stiff arm that person and say, I don't want you in my life. You don't refresh my spirit. No, we still are called to love and be unified with everyone. But it's okay to lean into the relationships that leave you feeling refreshed. To tell those people, like, listen, I just need you to know that when I spend time with you, I walk away feeling more full. Let those people know. Those people deserve recognition is what Paul says. What I want us to spend most of our time this morning is on the phrase that Paul says in verse 13 and 14 when he says, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. I feel like this, these two sentences are a great summary of the whole book. They're a great summary of everything that Paul has written in this letter. Kind of fits into these categories. 
So what I want us to spend the rest of our time this morning doing is to look at these two verses in particular and walk through and see how this book of 1 Corinthians has shown us these things and what we should take away from this book. The first thing is be on your guard. He says, be on your guard. And this is specifically, he's talking about against false teaching, against attacks from the enemy, and unity and conduct. Be on your guard against these attacks. If you remember a long time ago, we started talking in in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it's about unity. There was this attack in Corinth on the unity of the church. And they were dividing against themselves because of the leaders that they followed. And they were getting to these arguments about who they followed and and, and what that person said. And they were putting a little too much stock into what these men said. They were putting too much stock into humanly human wisdom. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25, Paul says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human wisdom strength. What happens is that we've put too much stock into human wisdom, into things that we think are important or the things that other people have told us are important. The ideas of men, the wisdom of men divides us. We pick the wrong things to make a big deal of. We should be concerned with living to bring glory to God, to care for widows and orphans, to love our neighbors, spreading the gospel and focusing on the kingdom of God, not temporary issues of opinion. We have to remember that we have the same mission and let that unite us. I used the analogy when we talked about this of a football team. That if you have a football team and they come out and, and let's say the wide receivers are really concerned uh, with, with what color pants you're wearing that week, right? And then uh, the, the offensive linemen, just, their main focus is, is that they don't like what time the game is. You know, they, they wanted to watch another game play at 1 o'clock. And so you know, they don't want to play at 1. They want to be on TV in the night game because that's what all offensive linemen love is recognition, right? And so you have, and if if the quarterback is like, you know what? The only thing I care about is what we eat before the game. If I don't get to pick out the meal before the game, I'm not playing. If that's the focus of the football team, are they going to win? No. Absolutely not. Unless they're playing Vanderbilt and they got a good shot. (laughs) When the team comes together and is focused on the mission at hand, We have a team we have to beat. They're focused on the game plan. They're focused on the directions they have been given. That's a winning football team. That's a football team that's going to come out united and outdo everything on the field of the other team that's worried about the other stuff. So what happens when we as the church are too concerned about what we wear at church, when we're concerned about what kind of music is played, what instruments are on stage, when we're concerned about what time the service starts, what day of the week we meet, is that we've missed the point. And we do things like we only focus on missions for Annie Armstrong and Mighty Moon. And that's it. That's the only time that we, we have this focus and we've lost track of the mission at hand. And we've gotten concerned with these peripheral issues. 
Scripture doesn't say to take care, of, take care of widows and orphans only if they're not trying to mooch off the welfare system. It doesn't say to help the needy as long as you approve of their lifestyle. Love your neighbor. Come together for the mission that is at hand instead of bickering about insignificant things. Be on guard for attacks against your unity in the church. Because the enemy is still working that way. He's still finding those things that, there are opinions that we probably hold a little too tightly. He's going to tell us if somebody disagrees with you on that, they can't be a Christian. That's not, that's not somebody who follows Jesus if they disagree with you on this thing. Nah. That's not how it works. We've got to stop letting the enemy win. We have to be on guard we also have to be on guard against the attack on godly living. If you remember, there were some big moral issues going on at the church of Corinth. They had these really big issues. I mean, we start off, uh, I, don't, I don't remember which chapter it is, but we start off and he says, listen, uh, you, can't, you can't champion somebody having an affair, an incest affair. Uh, you can't do that. You can't, you can't talk, you can't brag about that, Okay. Let's not talk about how that's a great thing. And the enemy is still attacking our idea of what it means, what it looks like to live in a way that honors God. The enemy is still attacking. He wants to erode your definition of what is good and what is right and what is holy. If he can make you blur the line between what is good and what is sinful, it changes how we represent God to the people around us. That's a big concept, how we represent God to the people around us, because it is a fine line to walk. If we say sin is okay, and we champion these things that are sinful, what does it show the world? It shows them that they don't need Jesus. It shows them that it doesn't really matter what you do. Then why do they need Jesus? What do they need any of this for if everything they do is okay? If everything we decide to do is okay, why do we need Jesus? The gospel rests on recognizing that we are sinful. And so if we start to, to, to blur the line, if we start to change what is sinful and what's not, then it, it becomes to where we don't even need Jesus. Because the whole point is I am sinful. Doesn't matter what the sin is. Doesn't matter what the sin is. The starting point of salvation is I am a sinner. We have to recognize that sin is sin. Not think that our faith gives us a license to sin or the freedom to do whatever we want because it's all forgiven anyway. Paul very specifically speaks against that, and that's not what salvation is. But salvation is also not a license to be a self-righteous jerk. It doesn't give us the right to think that we're superior to anyone else because of the way we live. This leads us into Paul's next thing that he says in verse 14, verse 13, when he says, stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. And I want to specifically add that he's talking about faith in the gospel, the simplicity of the faith 
in the gospel. The church at Corinth was adding to and removing some parts of what the gospel meant. They were adding things like spiritual gifts and that you had to do this. And they were adding things uh, like, or, or taking away things like resurrection and saying, it doesn't really matter if you believe in resurrection or not. And Paul says, no, stop adding to, stop, stop, stop taking away from the gospel. Stand firm in the faith. The people of Corinth, similar to modern-day believers, had a tendency to add to the gospel. We make it about things that it isn't. The gospel is not about keeping the law. The gospel is not about just being a better person than, than your neighbor or your coworker. The gospel is not about trying to earn favor with God through our works. It's not about trying to prove to God that you were deserving of salvation in the first place. Early on in chapters 4 and 5, Paul talks about judging. I don't know if you remember, but the first week it was like, don't judge. And then the next week it was like, judge, but don't judge. And it was like, what, how, what are we supposed to do with this? And Paul's point was, judgment is different than condemnation, right? To judge is just to say, this is right, this is wrong. But to condemn is when we puff ourselves up and say, look, this is right, this is wrong, and you are worse because of it. What's happened here is that we have become very judgmental people. And like I said earlier, there's this fine line to walk between saying, it doesn't matter, nothing is really sinful, do whatever you want, and hey, look, if you do anything, you're a terrible human being. And what's happened is that this idea of being judgmental has pushed people away from the church. If you hear a lot of people who don't like the church, one of the main things they say is that the church is full of hypocrites. The church is full of hypocrites. And what, what happens is that we're called hypocrites because we're quiet about the things that we struggle with and we're really loud about the things that we don't struggle with. No one would complain about the church being full of hypocrites if we just treated all sin the same. If we just treated it all the same, what the world has a problem with is the woman who's on her third marriage yelling about how wrong homosexuality is. What the world has a problem with is an overweight pastor talking about how terrible alcohol is. You got your own problems too. So don't talk about these other sins like they're far worse than the fact that you're standing up here and you've got on three belts taped together. Right? Y'all know some of those Southern Baptist pastors that when they walk across the stage, their belly's getting rug burned, you know? <laughs> and those guys will stand up here and tell you that what you're doing is wrong and then hit up and order all the whole menu at KFC. That's what I'm talking about. I know I'm being silly. But that's what I'm talking about is that we're really loud about these other sins, but when it comes to the stuff we struggle with, it's like, ooh, please don't talk about gluttony. I don't... I don't want you to talk about that. But I'll tell you how wrong drinking alcohol is. I'll tell you how wrong it is to have a beer. It's not the point. It's not the point. We got to be loud about all sin and say, look, it's all bad and we all do it. And the point is, I couldn't do it on my own. I'm not better than you. I'm not better than you. I hope that that's my attitude as a pastor. I, I don't think it is the case that anyone comes in here and thinks that I'm better than you just because I'm standing a foot and a half higher than you guys, right? 
I'm not better than you because I have a microphone. And I hope that the more you've gotten to know me, you started to see, yeah, he's not better than me. I get it. <laughs> but guys, that's what pushes the world away. Because I'll tell you, for more than half of my life, probably two-thirds of my life, I lived like I was better than other people because I went to church every Sunday. Because I grew up wearing khaki pants and a dress shirt every, every week for an hour and a half and struggling with sin at home. But I thought I had this puffed up sense that that, that made me better. And because I didn't struggle with these issues, because I didn't drink alcohol, because I didn't do drugs, that made me a better Christian than somebody who did struggle with those things. Meanwhile, I was addicted to pornography with this messed up idea that somehow I was better than somebody else. What? We've got to stop letting the enemy puff us up and stop listening to the enemy tell you how good you are because we're all rotten. The best that we've got is the dirtiest garbage. Standing firm in the faith means not moving to add more or to take away from what the gospel means. It's not about adding a sense of self-righteousness because of spiritual gifts and, and, and what we've done. Paul continues to say to be courageous and strong. I'm kind of grouping these together because it's kind of the same idea, right? Like be courageous and strong. Be different from the world around you. Let Christ change how you view the world instead of letting the world determine how you view Christ. This idea has been right in the front of my brain for weeks now. This idea that so often we let our worldview determine what we think about Jesus instead of letting Jesus determine our worldview. And you might think that because you've grown up in church that you are letting Jesus determine your worldview, but I would challenge you that there probably are issues that if the Bible told you differently, you would say, I'm not sure that means what it means. We have to let, we have to surrender. We have to say, if I keep trying to do this on my own, I'm just going to keep falling on my face. When Paul, when Paul starts off the book of Corinthians, he talks about unity and division. And, and in this, he works in the idea of wisdom. And I, just, you know, I read the verse that says his, the, his weakness is our strength and our most wise is less than his least wise. I probably should have just read it. Um, <laughs> anyway, he says in, in chapter 2, he says, what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. We didn't even get this understanding of who God was from ourselves. It was taught to us by the Holy Spirit. And now we have the Holy Spirit 
dwelling inside of us. And he ends chapter two with this idea that we have the mind of Christ. And I said it then, let that blow your mind. Do it again. Let it blow your mind that you have the mind of Christ. I hope that it blows your mind at this time because it blows my mind too. I have the mind of Christ because I have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of me. And that is what should give us courage and strength to say something else that is a running theme of the book of Corinthians. When Paul says more than once, he says, imitate me. He says, imitate me. What a bold thing to say. That we should be so confident that we are following after the Lord that we can say it not from a place of pride. See, I've grew, I grew up in a church that would say, follow me, and it was a sense of pride, right? I lived my life like I just talked about for so long saying, follow me like I had the answer, but that's not where that comes from. Saying follow me isn't because I'm perfect it's not because I've figured out the answer and I know exactly where I'm going and, and I'm, I have arrived, but it's because I'm imperfect just like you and I'm following the one who is perfect. I found the one who has brought me healing, who has redeemed me, who has made me whole, and I want to take you to him. I'm heading this way. Follow me. I know that I am going towards Jesus, follow me, imitate me. Not because I know that I, I don't know my destination, not because I have all the answers, but I know where to find them. I know who does have the answers. And, and if there's anything that this book of Corinthians screams, it is this verse that Paul says when he says, do everything in love. That's the whole verse. That's it. We're going to do something this morning. We're going to memorize scripture. Y'all ready? I'm going to have you memorize this verse. What book are we in? First Corinthians. Thank you, babe. Everybody else answered so slowly it made me worried. We've been in here since <laughs> August. Y'all should have said First Corinthians so fast. We're in First Corinthians. What chapter are we in? 16. And this is verse 14. So 1 Corinthians 16, 14. Y'all say that? 1 Corinthians 16:14. Y'all gotta stop talking like robots. It creeps me out. When people talk in unison and we all forget how to talk like we normally talk. Like if I got up here and I was like, 1 Corinthians 16, 14, none of you would be here. I hope. <laughs> I would it would be so boring. Say it like you actually talk, okay? First Corinthians. Thank you, Travis. I heard you. Accent and all. Nailed it. Perfect. And what does it say? Do what? Everything in love. Let's say it again. Do everything in love. And where can you find that if you opened up your Bible? And it says. Make the screen black. I just want to make sure they got it, okay? <laughs> 1 Corinthians 6, 14, it says what? As your pastor, if there's 
one thing that you guys get from me. I say it all the time. If I got hit by a bus tomorrow, I don't ever see a bus, but if I got hit by one, probably because I didn't see it coming. Um, If I got hit by a bus, I would want my legacy to be, this would be in the top five, okay? Like, I'm not saying this is all, but like, this is in the top five. If you guys walked out of this place and every day you lived to do everything in love, I would be a proud pastor. And we know do everything in love because it's found where? Yeah, we're ready on that one. Do everything in love. And again, this is, this is that, that time where it's a shame that we speak English because love doesn't mean love like I love pizza. Love doesn't mean love like I love my sister or my dad. Love doesn't mean love even like I love my wife. It's a different kind of love. It is this agape love. So when he says do everything in love, not like you love your family, not like you love your coworker, like God loves you. Do everything in your life with the kind of love that only comes from God. Do everything in agape love. The church at Corinth, they forgot it. They forgot how to love. When we sum up this entire series, we have this graphic that says flawed church. Their flaw, they forgot to love. They forgot how to love. They have become become really self-focused, self-centered as a church. What happened is they said, I decide what's right and wrong myself. I take care of myself. I isolate myself from people who think differently than me. I choose who I follow. I'm better than people who don't have these spiritual gifts. I'm better than people who don't struggle with that sin. I'm a better Christian because of something that I did. I have these things and that makes me better. They become really puffed up, really self-focused. And Paul responds by saying, if that's how you live your life, if I live my life just like that, I'm an annoying noise. I have gained nothing. I am nothing. I can look the part. I can perform miracles. I can show up to church every Sunday. But if I don't have love, I'm better off if I had never even heard the name of Jesus. I think the passage that sums this up best, if I had to pick uh, one, I guess it's technically three verses. If I had to pick three verses that sum it up the entire book, in a perfect little bow. It's 1 Corinthians 10, 31. It says, So whatever, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved the idea that is summed up when the Pharisees are trying to trick Jesus and they say, what's the most important law? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second one's like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love people. And what Paul says here is he says, bring glory to God and bring God to people. 
bring glory to God and bring God to people. What does 1 Corinthians 16, 14 say? Do everything in love. Love God. Love people. Bring glory to God and bring God to people. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this letter to the church at Corinth. It was so rich for us to study as a church, for us to look at all the issues that this church had, that that they had these flaws, and and God, that, that you didn't say, well, this isn't a church anymore. This is not my church. But God, you chased after them with Paul. And Paul said, look, if you want to figure this out, I will help you figure it out. But you've got to stop doing these things. You've got to be, stop being so self-focused. You've got to do everything in love. I pray that that is what would define our lives, that we would do everything in love, either in love for you or love for people we would do everything in love. And we would seek that we would bring glory to you through our conduct, through the way we represent you to others. God, that everything, even the most insignificant things, we would try to find a way to bring glory to you. And that we would bring you to the world around us, that we would represent you as your ambassadors to the world. God, help us to be people who do everything in love. In your name we pray, amen.